This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. It's probably not an exaggeration that playlisting is the hottest subject in the music business right now. And many independent companies have popped up to help artists and labels get their music to the curators, or influencers, that make those playlists. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. Today, we talk to a company that gets music to influencers, a journalist who has written about this topic, and a playlist curator about the ins and outs of getting your music playlisted. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. I'm talking to Garrison Snell from Crosshair. Garrison, welcome to the future of what. Thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So you have developed an online platform called Crosshair Music, and if you could just go ahead and tell us about Crosshair, that would be awesome. I'm happy to. Crosshair came out of an organization called Gyrosity Project, which is the first business I started. It's still definitely the biggest. It's a outsourced marketing agency for brands, artists, major labels, some instances, management companies. And basically, they outsource their marketing needs to this agency. And we had a ton of independent artists that were working with us, wanting to get on Spotify playlists. And we started looking around at other marketing agencies to help us do that or other kind of outsourced means of doing that. And there wasn't anything in the market that was productized. What I mean is Everything the independent artists were paying for was a person going out pitching this, banking on their relationships. And it was a it was a model that looked very similar to independent radio promotion. If you guys are familiar with how that's usually structured, it's some guy who had, you know, radio contacts back in the day and they charge a monthly retainer and independent artists pay them to pitch on the program directors that nine times out of ten don't care. I just started looking at it and I'm realizing we're in the age of streaming, like we're in this era, this is all tech-based. Why is there not a productized solution for this? So we built a web app and started onboarding as many playlists as we could find, as many playlist brands, and honestly, a ton of social influencers. These are like Instagram accounts, YouTube accounts, and Twitter accounts that we knew were going to, for lack of a better word, impact the way the streaming platforms looked at what was happening online and like what they prioritized for their editorial playlists. And so we ended up with this really kind of massive database of influencers and a web app on top of it to serve them. And we could price it because it's technology-based and there weren't people doing that pitching. We could price it in a way that was, you know, 10% of what, what everybody else was pricing it at. So does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So basically what you do is artists come to you, independent artists, I assume, and I don't know what your ranges are. Are all the artists unsigned or some signed to indie labels or some signed to major labels? Or is it across the board? The vast majority are independents and it's priced that way on purpose and it's marketed that way on purpose. The goal is to take an independent artist from that notorious under a thousand streams marker to its first hundred thousand to five hundred thousand streams, which is mostly done usually through breaking onto the Discover Weekly algorithm or the Fresh Finds or Release Radar algorithms. 
And you do that through a certain kind of certain ratios of number of playlist ads, skip rates, listen rate, saves, streams, all these different things inside a 28-day period. And so obviously getting added to independent playlists is a big deal. And the major labels and major artists who have used it, they look at it and they go, oh, it didn't move the needle a lot for us. And I'm like, no, duh. It's, I mean, your, your results are going to be asymptotic when you're the you know 50 most listened to profile on the planet. Like we did a campaign for a really popular EDM act last year, and their management came back and said, yeah, it didn't really move the needle a ton for us. I'm going, what recently has moved the needle a ton for you? You're the, literally the 37th most listened to profile on Spotify, and you think a $250 campaign to a bunch of independent playlists is going to put another million plays inside your 22 million monthly listeners, whatever it is. Wow. Like that's not, it just doesn't make any sense. Right. So expectations are way off at that level because performance is asymptotic, right? But at the independent level, major gains can be made. And honestly, most of our clients on the crosshair side, it's their first track or it's their first release. And they're a bartender or a barista who's trying to, who's honestly saved up some money and is trying to, just find a way to spark this release. And so we priced it and positioned them in a way that said, this is the most organic and best bang for your buck out there, as opposed to going and hiring an agency, which I'm very familiar with, or hiring a PR firm. And inversely, it'll save you a ton of time. And it's because we've already gathered all the contacts, you know? Right. Now, the people who get the, some money from this are actually the playlist curators, right? The influencers. Yeah, it depends on how you look at it. But yes, directly, we pay the curators to listen to the song and review it. When you hit about 100,000 streams as an artist, you make about 400 bucks if you distribute through TuneCore or CD Baby or something like that. So you could say that you know a, a very successful campaign that reaches that pays for itself you know, and, and more. So depending on how you want to look at it, both sides can make money off of it. But directly, we take a portion of what's paid to us and pay them, pay the curators. Right. However, I would, I mean, I'm going to guess, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you're not guaranteeing anyone playlisting. No. Right. You really can't. And it's not, we wish we could. And I'll tell you, like, I'm happy to break this down for your listeners, but we've never bought a playlist in our life. And you know, there's plenty of our competitors who go out and buy playlists, and that's directly against Spotify's terms of service. You'll get shut down, and the artist profile will get shut down. I was literally talking to the North American head of playlisting last week here in Nashville about this. And he said, oh yeah, we've shut plenty of people down and they're very aware of us and you know, knows that we don't do that and aren't putting any of our artists in danger. So the value proposition you can make to artists is, hey, we own the playlist, we bought them, we can put you on them and guarantee those placements. But it directly violates Spotify's terms of service and you'll, you'll get knocked around pretty good if you, if you go there. So we have to build a system in which our influencers are properly incentivized and use the platform so frequently that they're much more likely to add the stuff they like. You see what I'm saying? Gotcha. Yeah. So we reward those that add and, you know, we, we have incentive programs for those that do add more often or add, you know, or have more constructive feedback more often or things like that. So, so your artists, I'm just trying to understand how it works. Your artist comes to you and pays the fee and then gives you a song. Yeah. And then the song is put out to your influencers and what does the artist receive? So that's exactly what happens. And they do it through the online platform. And the artist receives usually inside six weeks. So what they get first, they hit create. And literally, they're going to get a screen that pops up that's their campaign screen. And there's a little tab that says responses. And you click on it. 
and it's probably going to be blank at that moment. But what just happened was all the influencers got a notification. The ones that got matched to the campaign got a notification. They're logging in, listening to the song and responding. And so within the first day or so, you're probably going to get 20 to 30 responses. And then over the next six to eight weeks, you're going to cap out at probably 75 to 100 responses. And those responses are going to be influencers saying, I love this or I don't. They're going to give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. A thumbs up means, yes, I'm interested in adding it. Thumbs down means I'm passing. They all leave feedback. And then the thumbs up gives you, gives you a way to message them in the platform and coordinate any sort of placement or co-promotion opportunities, depending on the platform that the influencers are on, right? I mean, for YouTube, there may be some very specific things you need to work out with them, or in some cases, music supervisors who we have on the platform need to get a hold of management, whatever it is. And so the artist just gets all of these people who have said, I'm interested in adding it. Would you reach out to me? And a, and a secure way to reach out to them and coordinate getting placed on their channel. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's one of the things you were saying at the beginning of the interview, which is that you're actually creating direct relationships between people, which is, I think, a service that's very different from what other people are trying to do. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not super traditional music business, honestly. I, I don't think that... I have, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a reformed drummer, I guess. It's the closest I come <laughs> to being any sort of creative. Uh-huh. And it's not my opinion. That it's, I don't feel like I've hired people or I myself am qualified to listen to your song and go, yeah, I think this is good enough to be sent to my influencers. Like, I'm going to pay my influencers to tell you whether they like it or not. And they know that they know their world and their channel and their usage of music better than I do. And then I'm going to use technology to get them the best music possible for their thing. But honestly, it's my opinion that influencer marketing is just now heating up in the music industry. And it's still one of the most organic, affordable and approachable ways for an independent artist to go about kickstarting their song promotion online. And I mean, it's, it's evidenced by the way Spotify specifically, the way the Echo Nest algorithm works, which is the recommendation algorithm behind Discover Weekly and these things. The way you know part of it works is it scans millions and millions of social profiles looking for conglomerates of song mentions so that it can it basically takes that song mention, kind of floats it up to the top of the system for Spotify and says, here's a song we think might be worth playlisting. Go take a listen. And it, you know, social influencers as well as playlists are really important in that. So I, I just really think artists need to jump on the influencer bandwagon hard, even outside of just playlists. So let me, let me walk me through something here. So, so let's say you are a musician and you're making music in a non-traditional area. Like, let's say you're a, like a blues R&B artist, as opposed to a straight indie rock alternative artist. Mm. Do you guys have influencers in your stable or your, you know, your, your, I don't even know what you did, your collection mm. of influencers that work in that category. I mean, do you have, are you across multiple genres or are you sort of indie rock heavy? So it's a good question. I mean, <laughs> I'm curious, is there some sort of perception out there that we're pretty indie rock heavy or? No, no, that's, it's because it's my own bias because I'm indie rock heavy. So it's Got like, it. you know, everything that comes to my world is, is indie rock. So, you know, cool. that's what I'm saying. I'm always curious what people are seeing out there on us because our marketing is a little all over the place sometimes, but we cover pretty much everything well, except really traditional country. Well, I don't even really traditional country. I'm talking really straight down the middle pop country. We cover Americana and like roots better than we do pop country. CCM or Christian and like world music or 
you know, instrumental world, African-based rhythms or Middle Eastern-based rhythms. Pretty much everything else, we have a significant amount of influencers who are looking to use that. It's, you know, the, the channels are all different. Some of them have themes outside of music and what they're looking for is a certain type of feeling in the music that they want to use behind the video. Some playlists are just straight genre-based. Some are like genre and time-based, so it's the best of pop from 2017 or, you know, the best of pop from the 2000s or something. And then you have plenty that are the exact opposite, which is the best moods for your beach trip or whatever. And those can be everything. It's just literally the curator's opinion on what would make a good beach song, you know? Right. So there are ways to insert just about anything into some of those fabrics. You just have to be really creative. And in my opinion, you have to hedge on the side of giving an artist a lot more options and giving them exposure to a lot more influencers than maybe are relevant, you know, like you have to kind of stretch a little bit sure, and say, all right, we think this might be a match. We're going to put it in there anyways, because this version of a blues rock song might fit this guy today, gotcha. you know, because we're dealing with music and their tastes and their moods and their opinions change on the daily, just based on what time of day it is and whether they've eaten or not, you know, <laughs> it's true of me. And that's absolutely true. Yeah. So the short answer to your question, we handle pretty much everything except those three genres. And would you say that that's because those three genres are are either already covered, like I'm thinking pop country is, is sort of a major, heavy, big budget thing, or because the playlists don't exist for that genre? I think the playlist not existing as much for those genres is a result of the utility of the music. And so if you'll bear with me, I'll get a little philosophical, but... The music that we deal in the most is music that has, and I hate to say it this way, but music that has value outside of just this is a good commercial song. It like it has true emotional value. It's an enhancement of some emotional state of being, and there's a playlist built around that, either in appreciating that genre, appreciating that time, appreciating that feeling. And pop country itself doesn't give you a lot of that value. Pop country is honestly just a it's weirdly more specific and more narrow, narrow is a better word for it, more narrow than you would expect because you get the same emotional feeling pretty much every song. And so it's hard to make a playlist out of that. Mm. You know, it's hard to make a, it's hard to make like an emotionally diverse playlist or an emotionally valuable playlist out of that. I think of music kind of as a color wheel. If you're thinking about like, you know, on Photoshop or something, when you go to pick a hex code, it has the wheel of colors, all the different shades for me, that's music, and pop country is like one very specific small part of that that gives you one emotional flavor or one emotional color shading. And the playlists that are built to reflect that are often just like today's best pop country hits. You know, some people are putting like, you know, going camping, but they're not like the camping playlists, they have like roots music and some classic rock and some early 2000s country. They don't have a lot of post 2010 country on it or post even 2012 country, pretty much all the playlists or channels geared around that are like, we're appreciating the top hits of today. And there's no, there's no other value beyond that. Gotcha. There's no other substance beyond that. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. I gotcha. Okay. Interesting. It's just an observation. But, you know. <laughs> That's very interesting. Right. So now I understand from the articles I've read about you that you are 23. I'm 24 now. So yes. Yeah, you're 24. So what I, I was going to say, what were you doing before this that led you into this field? But I think maybe college is the obvious answer to that question. Yeah, it was it was college. I went to Belmont <laughs> University in Nashville. I'm a big proponent of Belmont and the opportunities that it gives folks to come to Nashville. It's a very unique college experience. 
I'm originally from Bentonville, Arkansas, which is the home of Walmart and there's not much else there besides that. Uh-huh. But my dad is a, he's a kind of a bar musician. And so I've been traveling with him and helping him set up PA and playing drums for his band since I was eight, basically. Wow. And then I got to Belmont and started working for a bunch of different artists and mm-hmm. was lucky enough my sophomore year to get hired by a kind of a legendary country artist. He was so in you ever heard of the band Brooks and Dunn? Sure. Okay, so in Brooks and Dunn there's Kix Brooks and Ronnie Dunn, which Ronnie is a tall, skinny singer, Kix wears the cowboy hat. Ronnie and Kix had split up. Ronnie signed with Sony after they split up as a solo artist, left Sony and started a label called Little Willie Records. And then by way of some mutual connections, hired me as his like head of marketing for like a year and a half while I was still in college. And I just worked out of his house basically and just did his marketing work. I was all my marketing work and kind of learned the ropes there. And from there, I went to work at an artist management company that was dealing with some other major country artists. And then that was all salaried work through college that then literally the Saturday that I graduated, you know, hung out for the weekend went back into work on a Monday and had a discussion with uh, the company I was working for that we both just decided to be better if I went and found a new adventure for myself and decided that day to start this. Wow. So the only thing I've done since graduating is this, <laughs> Wow. which is, which is awesome. It's yeah. been going on three years now. So Exciting. Well, Garrison Snell, we've really enjoyed talking to you here on The Future of What. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you guys for your time.
That was Video Love by Hands. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. If you're like us, you love a good newsletter. As an artist, it's a great way to get in touch with your fans, bring them behind the scenes, and offer exclusive opportunities. Share your tips for creating a great newsletter by tweeting us at at KRSFOW and subscribe to ours. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Sherry Hu. Sherry, welcome to The Future of What? Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So we're talking to you today about an article that you wrote back in May for Forbes called Inside the Ongoing Quest to Get Music Curators Paid. And I'm interested in talking to you about this for several reasons. One is that it's just like a very interesting moment in history because this is like a new thing. Yeah. The other reason is because we've been talking for so long in the industry about how to get artists paid. So it's really funny that like actually now we're talking about how to get curators paid. Right. (laughs) It's like, oh, yeah, it's a different, that's a different angle. So can you just give us an overview of the article and tell us what you were writing about? Yeah, sure. So I was writing about a lot of companies that were coming up at the time that were trying to pay curators and tastemakers. And one key theme in the article was looking at just the range of tastemakers available. Like in marketing in general, there's been a recent trend towards targeting quote-unquote micro-influencers or social media personalities with very small but very engaged followings. So seeing how certain startups are trying to to monetize that on the music side. And so some of the key companies are Herdwell, which is actually a super interesting model where they, it's a traditional label model, I guess, but they sign influencers who then pick artists to put on their own compilation albums. And so there's, there's a licensing element to that. There are also startups like Crosshair, which is based out of Nashville, and they pay tastemakers with a focus on micro-influencers to review songs. And it doesn't even require that they put them on their playlist on their social media sites, but it's just a way for artists to get feedback and then for these micro-influencers to get paid small amounts per song review in the process too. Yeah, we've spoken to Garrison from Crosshair, so we have a picture of what they do. I'm just really interested in the idea of compilations because Kill Rockstars has been around for 26 years and our very first release was actually a compilation and it had my husband's next door neighbor's band Nirvana on it. And that's kind of why that ended up being successful because it was just that time and place. Mm. But what's fascinating in your article is that some of these people I think heard well is one of them are actually advocating physical compilations, putting out physical compilations. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's it's fascinating, (laughs) especially, yeah, just because I feel like, yeah, especially in in the U.S. or in Europe generally, the modern consensus is that like streaming is the dominant form of music consumption. Physical sales continue to go down. But I think, I think Herdwell's thesis is that there are these sort of internet first digital native, whatever you want to call them, social media personalities, and they build these really devoted followings online. And the next logical step is how do you bring that offline? So for average musician, obviously live shows still comprise a huge part of their of their revenue and and merch as well. Merch continues to be an important revenue stream for a lot of artists. And I think 
what Herdwell is trying to propose is that the same is true for social media influencers, for anyone who's building their career on the internet and building a following and wants to monetize that offline. See, I'm just, I'm so fascinated by that because to me, compilations sort of died. I mean, we've done compilations for so long on my label and they kind of died like 10 years ago. And I really felt like putting out compilations was like a total dead end. Like we wouldn't waste our time doing that. And then it's so funny because like five seconds later, the internet and playlisting popped up and, you know, playlisting basically is making comps. That's all it is. I kind of was under the impression that the success of playlisting though was in the turnover. Do you know what I mean? Like Mm. you get like discover weekly, like you get a different playlist each week. Like I kind of thought that was the interesting part of playlisting, but this is so interesting because they're, they're saying that that's not the case. Yeah. And yeah, another interesting point that I discussed in my article, yes, house streaming is sort of the, it's at the end of the marketing funnel, I guess, for a release from these compilations. And I think they are really trying to target these diehard fans who would also buy things like pins with a logo from the YouTube channel or Instagram channel or whatever that they really follow. So first targeting those fans and then catering to the more casual lean back listener after the fact through these Spotify releases. So you you mentioned a an Amsterdam-based startup, Collect.fm, mm-hmm. and they have a program called Atmosphere. And you say in the article that most of the curators on Atmosphere's roster are actually music professionals, like they're people who are musicians or they have radio shows or they run record labels. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if this is, you know, it's like if this show is is geared towards people in the music business and especially musicians who are trying to figure out how to maximize income streams, should we also be telling musicians that they should become influencers, <laughs> that they should try to curate their own playlists? You know, I, I'm, it's just an interesting thing because it seems like we keep adding hats that musicians have to wear. Yes. No, that's that's such an interesting point. And there are a lot of more critical articles that have come up. Like the most recent one that I read was by, by Liz Pelly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's an incredible writer. Yeah. Just talking about how for better or for worse, artists do have to become these sort of all encompassing brands. Cause I think, I think a reality, especially for indie and emerging acts is that your, your streaming income will be paltry and you need to supplement it with something else. And so for, for these people mentioned in the article that ends up working directly with brands who are, who are trying to tap into these emerging tastes, and it also raises an interesting question of whether artists who are trying to build their careers can be truly DIY or what DIY really means when growing your career involves working directly with these brands who might not otherwise be involved in the music business. That's an interesting point, too, that I think you're right. The Liz Pelly article is a great place to point people because, you know, it's like, what are we doing in music these days? Are we just curating playlists for, you know, Nike? Basically, mm. like, are we basically just selling shoes with music? Like, is that, is that what's happening? Right. And actually, you just mentioned Nike. I don't know if you saw the TechCrunch article about the United Masters launch. No. What's United Masters? So it's billed as a new social media analytics and music distribution company catered towards indie and DIY artists. And it has $70 million in VC funding from the likes of Andreessen Horowitz and Google and, and Alphabet. So the, the article that broke the news was published on TechCrunch. And this was not the perspective of the translation agency CEO, Steve Stout, but actually of, of the author, of the TechCrunch author himself. But he said that 
one of the key theses for United Masters is that an artist is like Nike, and that shouldn't be controversial. That should just be how any artist approaches their career. Like a song is just a commercial for the rest of your brand, and you have visual aspects of your brand, you have physical, tangible aspects, multimedia aspects, like just like Nike or Disney or any other, you know, clothing, fashion, media company would. And I, I know a lot of emerging and DIY artists who would really push back against that. They would prefer to just focus on making their art and being able to thrive off of just making their art. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting debate about like whether becoming your own Nike is sort of, you know, the, the paradigm for the future. Right. I mean, that is a really interesting point because there's an argument for that in the sense that you are your own business, you know, that every mm. every band is a startup to some extent, you know, you right. are your own business. And as such, you know, you have to think about things like image, you know, think about how you're coming across. But at the same time, you're making art, you know, you're not making a product. See, that's that's where we get into trouble, right? Because Art is supposed to be somewhat, you know, it's it's not supposed to be tethered to the physical world. You're not just making it because you want to make more money. So it's like, mm. you know, you say, oh, well, you guys didn't like that note. Well, I'll change it to a C or something mm. because people like the right. C better than, you know, whatever. You know, in other words, you're not tailoring a product to the market in, in such a bald way. But, you know, there are people who argue that you are tailoring music to a market to some extent. You know, it's like you're trying to have fans. Mm. People want people to like their music. So, yeah, that is an interesting argument for sure. Yeah, I think you may have mentioned this already. But, yeah, just the, the rise of companies like Atmosphere is bringing the point home that, yeah, music is becoming more and more like context based and more like literally atmospheric. Mm-hmm. I, I guess is a good way to describe it in, ter- in terms of how it's consumed. And the, the Liz Pelly article unpacks really well the rise of these mood playlists on Spotify and how that's really driving revenue for Spotify, the company. And it's a debate about whether that trickles down to the artists themselves. But yeah. Right. And yeah, I think we did an informal survey in our, in our office of Spotify playlists and like 70% of them had the word chill in it. Oh, really? It's like coffee and chill and (laughs) (laughs) chilling at the beach. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A lot about that. Awesome. Well, Sherry Hu, we've appreciated your time. Thanks so much for being with us on The Future of What? Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you so much.
That was Nothing is Easy by Marnie Stern. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Future of What? comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Braunohler wanted a face towel with his face on it? Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Walt Lilly, who curates the Apollo Playlist series for Red Eye Distribution. Walt, welcome to The Future of What? Thanks for having me. So this episode, we are talking about the almighty playlist, (laughs) which is such a hot topic these days in the music industry. And I wanted to talk to you because you actually have the distinction of being someone who curates playlists. Uh, I guess you could say that, yeah. (laughs) So tell us about, you know, I mean, this is your actual job. This is part of your actual job. So it's it's not like you're a 15-year-old kid sitting at home making playlists in your mom's house. This is like part of your actual job. Yeah, that's, it's part of, part of what I do. I feel like before I was in this whole, that, that was kind of my mental image of the whole thing where it's like you'd see these playlists with like these massive followings and you'd think it was it's just some kid who was making something like this in their basement and it just happened to pick up traction and now that this responsibility has fallen into their lap <laughs> yep but but now being here it's like you kind of you kind of see how how things get from point a to point b you know well how do things get from point a to point b do tell well, so I am kind of the project manager of Apollo Playlists, which is our, our little playlist brand. Like you look at Topsify and Digster or what have you. And the the thing that, that was a learning experience for me was seeing like who has stake in each of these sort of brands, you know, mm-hmm. like it's not, it's, they're not quite happy accidents. Right, right. Well, because those ones that you just mentioned, those are owned by the majors, right? Aren't those playlists that are specifically? exactly? Yeah. So now you guys are a distributor, you're an independent distributor. So that's a little bit different than being a major. So how did these Apollo playlists come about? So when you look at these playlists, when everyone's kind of got like a game, they're playing with each of the services, you know, it's like the hot button term. I feel like I heard so much two years ago was like best practices for all these services. And it's like you're kind of playing along with what they like to see, you know. Mm. So there's something going on behind the curtain, you know, it's like so I I work for Red Eye Worldwide. We're We're a distributor. And so like we are. We are the stake that is behind Apollo, you know? Right. Like, the way I I try to see it is we're we're kind of playing the game to make good playlists that people who are on Spotify or want to listen to, the kind of thing that Spotify will look at, think they're doing a good job. They're doing everything that, that we're doing when we're promoting our own playlists and working within the system. But then at the same time, we're also trying to, like, push the artists that, that we're working on, artists that we believe in, and like kind of creating a, a good experience that both benefits us all. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a question that I had for you. You know, how do you balance the content, you know, between bands that you're pushing yourselves? Now, granted, a distributor like you guys, you you work with how many labels? A lot of labels. We work with a lot. I can't I can't even remember what the number is right now. It's over a hundred, I think. Oh, it's something like that. Oof. Yeah. 
It's it's a lot. And so it's not exactly, you know, to say you're pushing your own artists from your own labels, that's not a small number of bands. That's not like you're pushing six bands. <laughs> that's, that, absolutely. That's like a very a very large number. But like, how do you make those decisions about how much content should be directly from your labels and how much content should be from other places, you know, stuff that you just heard that you like, that you believe in, that you're excited about? I mean, you know, just how do you make a balance that feels organic and, and real? So, so that's one of the biggest challenges with this kind of thing. Our process, when we usually, we, we kind of do this on a month-to-month basis. We look at our monthly release schedule, like right before the start of each month, me and a team of like a handful of the curators that we have. We pull up the release schedule and we just kind of look at it and we're like, all right, we're going to skim this. We're going to mark down the this, this stuff that like we, we know we're really kind of rallying behind and where we we know we can find a good spot to put this in. What, what we really think is going to go places. And then we're also going to kind of find stuff that, that might be slipping underneath our radar because I would like to say that I listen to every single thing that Red Eye works on, but that's there's simply not enough hours in the day and there's a lot of stuff. I try to get like a wide swath of people that are working on this who are like keyed into the stuff that I'm not, that I'm not listening to. Right. And so we, we, we just sit there and we just kind of listen to what what we've got going on and then and then write down and plot it out for the the month ahead. And then in addition to that, I kind of find people who are really big heads about the specific genre or everyone says genre and mood, but you know, it's right. like we we work a little more around genre than mood, but it's you know. Yeah. I understand. Mood is such a big thing especially on Spotify with, you know, all the whatever and chill playlists, you know, you kind of have to take that into account for sure. Oh, yeah. Which is like even that we have a handful of playlists that are kind of in in that vein that we just kind of lump like they they say they say chill, but it's like is what is, is that like ambient? You know, it's like it's all buzzwords, you know? Right. Well, and that's another question. How many playlists do you guys have? How many Apollo playlists are there? And how did you decide like what to create? So when we started this, it was kind of a big experiment that we were just doing, just to throwing as many ideas against the wall. We all sat down in a big meeting and just blurted out like, think of some buzzwords, you know, like chill and unwind, party, et cetera, et cetera. And then we made a whole bunch of playlist right then and there when everyone was excited about it and we saw what stuck and we started out with a whole bunch of playlists that had pretty corny names you know like we had one that was like freaking weekend or something which i think we've deactivated <laughs> at this point if you're still following freaking weekend out there i'm i'm sorry but i don't i don't know if we're still <laughs> keeping that one but we've been focusing now on kind of just cutting the wheat from the chaff on that and getting a more core group seeing what people naturally found and gravitated towards. Like we found a lot, like the the reason why we've moved more in the genre direction is just because that's like what we individually managed to get more of a random foothold on. Like we've got an indie pop playlist that I don't think we put any advertising behind really, but it naturally found a bit of an audience. And that's kind of what we've moved towards since. Interesting. Gosh, with, with the number of, I mean, one of the coolest things about Red Eye is the diversity of genre of your labels. Like you guys are not like a metal distributor or a EDM distributor. Like you have incredible labels sort of all over the map. Oh yeah, and I feel like we're very fortunate yeah. for that for this particular project. It definitely is kind of interesting though because it gives you a challenge for creating these playlists. 
Yeah, but and it's it's nice having that wide of a pool, but it's also like you, you want to have focus on each individual leg of it all. Like I, I feel like something I've done is like I was like like I'm I'm kind of like a or a rock guy, and like we're trying to get some hip hop playlists going, you know, and I'm trying to make sure that we're getting as much attention across the board, you know. Definitely. So how much of your I mean this is this is of interest to me. How much of your time does it take to curate these playlists? Like how often do you switch songs? How does this work? So usually what I tell people is take a look around like every 2 weeks or so. Like ideally we have a few playlists that we update each week individually like uh, like Friday new music. Friday is when we do a whole bunch of I have very busy Fridays. But around two weeks is, is for the vast majority of what we do is like, hey, just doctor it up, pretty it up, add a few more, keep it current. Because, you know, like the thing Spotify and everyone tells you is you want these to be living entities. You want people to come back to them so they're not just going to sit in their libraries if they're falling. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the thing is, I've been thinking about starting a Kill Rockstars Spotify playlist. I mean, we have a couple, but like I'm, I've been thinking lately about sort of becoming more active in the curation process. And honestly, it's really daunting because it really seems time consuming. Yeah, because <laughs> like, it's, it's the kind of thing where you're like, I, I know if I'm going to start this, it's like I can't just be excited about it for a month and then forget about it exactly. once like other more pressing things happen. And you're like, oh, man, am I going to be, like, as plugged in the new stuff that's going on in, like, two weeks when there's a million other things going on, you know? Yeah. But it's that that's that's the hardest thing because, like, I, I, talk, I talk to a lot of, like, labels particularly about that kind of thing, and I'm like, if you guys are really going to do this, like, you're excited about this now, but there, there are things beyond the, the next month when you've got all these ideas for the playlist, you know? Well, and that's, I mean, you know, maybe you can speak to this because this episode that we're recording this interview for, we also spoke to Garrison Snell, who runs the Crosshair Company, Mm -hmm. which, you know, connects musicians and labels with influencers, curators. And then we spoke to Sherry, who, who wrote an article in Forbes magazine about sort of the economy of doing this right now. That's like playlisting is, is becoming such a big economy. And one of the things that they both talked about was the importance of compensating curators and and influencers, you know, because basically it's like we're at a point where this is such a big deal that people need to actually get paid for their time to do it because it's so time consuming. It's just like we were talking about at the beginning of the interview. It's like if you were just a kid in your mom's basement obsessively doing this, you know, a year ago or two years ago, that's one thing. But nowadays, it's such a big deal. It's like you kind of need a salary <laughs> to do this. One hundred percent. Like it's it's a major amount of time. Yeah. To to do all this, like like something something I I have a lot of trouble because I'm the only guy where it's like it's my main it, it it's one of my main focuses. It part of my job to work on this kind of thing, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of just like asking everyone else who who I know would do a good job at this to kind of donate some of the time out of their day to do this. And a lot of times they have to bow out. Right. So it's like, it's a weird thing that like, it, it takes so much time out of, out of everyone's day to make this happen. But it's, but it also like, I feel like it seems disposable from the outside mm-hmm. where it's like, right. oh, people are just making their own little private DJ sets. They're just plugging songs together. But there's a, there's a lot more to it, especially over time. Yeah, it, it makes me remember like the old days back in the day of like making mixtapes on cassette for like somebody you had a crush on or like your best yeah. friend or something. And man, you know, those things took hours. <laughs> 
Like, yeah, because you were putting like, thought into it. Forever to do that, yeah. Because yeah, you were trying to send a message, you know, yeah. if you were letting someone know how you felt. Exactly. I know. And You're it's like, funny. How, how's this transition going to sound? Right. Because we think with like the digital environment that it's so much easier now, but it's honestly, it's like really, because then you get into it and you're st- you start thinking like, oh, wait, does this song really go with this other song? Like, what, what if, you know, am I trying to say two different things? Like you get really in your head about it. You get, to, you have too many <laughs> options. You got the paralysis of choice. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. It's crazy. So the other thing that came up in my other two interviews, which I think is ironic and, you know, interesting all at the same time, you know, this is a, a podcast about the music business that is really focused on trying to help artists understand how they can make a living in this changing economy. And what's springing up with this interview series is there's this whole other group of people out there who are now making money, yep. <laughs> being influencers, creating playlists. So I feel like the takeaway of this whole episode should be, hey, musicians, while you're not in the studio or while you're not writing songs or while you're not on tour, maybe you should be curating playlists on Spotify so you can make some extra cash. Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice if we could all just get that job? It seems nice from the outside. Right. But isn't that interesting that it's like, yeah, we've created another niche in the music industry, but not for musicians. Yep. Like another income stream, but not for musicians. Yeah. Yeah. It's ironic. And and here we are. Seriously. So how long have you been doing these Apollo playlists? We started it about two and a half years ago and about two, like we, we, no one was really super in charge of it. It was just something that we were all kind of chipping in on. And then two years ago, I took over Mm -hmm. and, and became the project manager of it, overseeing things. And did you answer this before about how many songs like... Because right now on the new and fresh playlist, I see you guys have 47 songs. Mm -hmm. Like, is there a number of songs where you're like, okay, that's too many or that's too little? Yeah. So so with that playlist in particular, new and fresh, that's that's like kind of our our biggest one because it's it's kind of just a straightforward new release playlist where we we like place all of our digital releases for that week. In addition to anything else that's that's non red eye that whoever's running it that week just just likes and wants to add to pad it out. So a lot, a lot of that, see, it's, it's sort of dependent on what the what the new release schedule is that week. But I try to keep it around like thirty to fifty. Okay. I found I've I've because like with that one in particular, like people follow it on Fridays. It's a new music thing. Like people are looking for what's 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 out that week. And usually when it's not super bloated, I found a little bit better results. Interesting. Close to the thirty, it's a little bit more digestible. I think. Gotcha. Okay. That is interesting. Yeah. Cause I want, I mean, you know, playlists have that unlimited quality to them, but I think you're right. If I think if I went to a playlist that had 200 songs, I'd be like, oh, well, <laughs> I don't know that I have time to, yeah. to really listen to this. But, but like at the same time, it's like a lot of people, everyone consumes these sort of things differently. And I know that like some people just jump to it and hit shuffle on something. And maybe what they're looking for is one of those nightmares. That's like 3000 tracks, you know? Do people skip songs or do people who listen to playlists just really listen straight through? Like, what would you say you've noticed? I've noticed that a lot of people just listen straight through. Like, I feel like the person like because to me, and at least at least the way I through my view of it, the the playlist listener is is usually like someone who's who's there to uh, just kind of have it on as like like the what, what's called like passive listeners and active listeners like. 
like 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 you and I oh, are lean like, back listeners. Yeah. yeah, like you and I are like music nerds or whatever, and we and we pay really close attention to all this stuff. But like a lot of people are just don't have the time to to do that kind of thing. Right. And a lot of times that's what the, that's what the playlist listener is, is that kind of person. Yeah. And, and you and that's where the curatorial artistic angle of it comes from. You want something that all flows into a nice experience for that particular person. And that for, for that particular kind of thing, that's, that, that's what I find land more when you're approaching it from that kind of angle. Definitely. So do you guys have any plans to create a new Red Eye and Chill playlist? We, so we got something that's kind of already like that. We have a chill and unwind. <laughs> I was kind of joking, but that's hilarious. Yeah, everyone loves the word chill on Spotify. It's so funny. I love it's that. One, it's one of the big ones. Yeah, seriously. Well, Walt, Lily, thank you so much for being with us on The Future of What today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> awesome.
That was Fit Against the Country by Horse Feathers. Buying merch from your favorite band is a great way to support them, but with so many bootleg products online, how do you know your money is going to the artists you love? Whether it's a t-shirt or a patch, your purchase should be officially licensed. Rockabilia.com carries one of the largest selections of official music merchandise in the world. Check out their store at rockabilia.com and get 15% off with the code PCFutureofWhat. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Hands, Marnie Stern, Horse Feathers, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.